Uh, so if you're like my family this last week, obviously Thanksgiving, we spent a lot of time with family and um, a lot of great memories, a lot of great time. We did a lot of fun stuff. Uh, but out of that, just in, in debriefing with our family, I always like to ask, what was your favorite part? What'd you do? What would you like the best? And just kind of asking those questions in our family. And me personally, as I'm listening to our family talk and even Becky and I sharing our favorite parts, uh, I recognize something that I think we would all agree with that every single one of us has relationships in our lives that have impacted us, right? That's just the way relationships work. You interact with somebody, that person leaves an impression on you, good or bad. There's some kind of an impact. There's some level of influence that happens in all relationships. However, there are certain, and I would say a few relationships that don't just impact you some, they impact your entire life. They change your entire life world. There are a few relationships, a few specific relationships that you have that have drastically and radically changed your life. You are not the same because of those relationships. When I had kids, when Becky and I had our three kids, that's a relationship that we gained, that we have, that has drastically changed our lives. No one comes up to you after having a kid and say, hey, how's it going? You now have three kids. Like, what's your life like? No one that has three kids says, oh, it's the exact same as before we had kids. Like, no difference. No, it's a lot has changed. I wouldn't trade it for the world. We love our kids, but I recognized this last week. We do a lot of things completely differently because we have kids. We played laser tag in a cabin in Gatlinburg because we have three kids. We would not have done that just me and Becky. I'm pretty certain. That would not have just been something Becky and I would have done. We stop at multiple Bucky's on our trip up and back down. Becky and I would have stopped at one, just the two of us. But when you have kids, we stop at every, we go out of our way to find a Bucky's. There's all kinds of things that we do because of the relationship we have with our kids. Our life is totally different. When you're married, the same thing. That could be another one of those examples, right? As soon as you get married, and then your life drastically changes from how you spend your time and spend your money. The things that you do are drastically different. Again, no one would come to you as a newlywed a year or two later and say, man, you're newlywed. You've been married for a year or two. Tell me how different your life is. No one would say, actually, I can't think of one thing that's different. It's pretty much the same as it was when I was a bachelor. No, that relationship has changed everything about. Relationships impact one another, but there are always a few specific ones that have radically and drastically changed your life. That's what James is trying to show us, that our relationship with Jesus is not just a relationship that changed a few things. Our relationship with Jesus changes everything. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, a believer in Christ, we do not just add a little bit of Jesus to our lives. That's not how it works. It's not, I want to be a Christian, so Jesus, I'm going to add just a little bit of you to my life. Everything else is going to stay the same, and I'm going to add a little bit of you. No, the life of a Christian, the life of a follower of Jesus is not adding a little bit of Jesus, but it's giving him everything. It's giving him our entire lives, which means our lives will be forever changed starting the moment we say yes to him. That's what James is showing us throughout his letter. He's saying if you are a follower of Jesus, or he even used the words as a slave of Christ, he says your life is going to look radically different because of what he's done inside of you. We've been using the illustration of a heartbeat, right? If you want to know if you are physically alive, you check a heartbeat. 
right? It proves that you are physically alive. You feel the breath coming in and out of your mouth. That's evidence that is proof that you are physically alive. And James points out all of these proofs or these evidence, this living proof that we are alive in Christ. So if we are a Christian, if we are alive in Christ, then you're going to see these heartbeats. Now, are we going to do those perfectly? Of course not. But he's trying to paint a picture of here's how your life is going to be different because you have not added Jesus to your life, but because you have given Jesus your entire life. So what we're going to see today is going to continue in that idea. What does it look like to truly give Jesus your entire life? So we're going to be in James chapter 4. As I mentioned, if you've got a Bible, be there. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put it on the screen, but would love for you to have your own out in the lobby. If you can navigate through all the local love donations, you'll find a stack of Bibles. Make sure you take that. That is our gift to you. James chapter 4 begins with a rhetorical question, and we're going to actually have to back up a little bit. And if you didn't know this, this is good to, to note. Uh, throughout Scripture, not just in James, but the entirety of Old Testament and New Testament, were not written with chapters and verses like we see it today. Those were added later as markers to help us know where to go. So I didn't have to tell you, like, no, keep turning your page, wait till you find this one word. It's easier to say James chapter 4, verse 1. But because of that, James isn't breaking thought going from chapter 3 to chapter 4. It all blends together. So I want to point out the end of chapter 3 so we can actually understand the context of going into chapter 4. The end of chapter 3, notice the picture that James is painting. Here it is, verse 15 out of chapter 3. James writes, For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. So he's painting a picture of here's what it looks like to be, here's what it looks like to be spiritually dead, a life not given to Jesus. But then the flip side, verse 17, notice the picture. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. Pure does not mean perfect, it means sincere. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Two very different pictures, right? So James is writing, here's what it looks like when we do not give Jesus our, our lives and our heart and do not follow him. Here's what it'll look like. Here's the heartbeat of those followers that have given their life to Christ. And you see words like peace, loving, gentle, uh, yielding to others, good deeds, pure, no favor. To, like those are great words that should be evident, that should be living proof that our lives have been given to Jesus. Now we can get into chapter four. Because the first part of chapter four, he paints, the, or he paints this beautiful picture in chapter three. And then he says, so why aren't you doing that? Is basically what James says. Look at verse one, the first part of verse one out of chapter four. James says, so what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? So like, why aren't you doing that? He just painted this beautiful picture of Christ followers being willing to yield to others, being sincere, being kind and gentle, loving so if that's the way we're supposed to be, why are you fighting? And we almost feel like, at least when I read this, I feel like I need to answer that question with, a, with an excuse, with a reason. What is causing these fights among you? I immediately want to say for them who he's writing to, well, it's not my fault, it's their fault, right? You immediately almost want to say them. 
So growing up, I have a younger sister, had a great time with her and her family this last week. Uh, but when we were younger, as siblings do, we, we would bicker, we would fight, right? And I mean, my kids never do this whatsoever. It must have just been me and my sister. My kids, angels, never fought in the car on a long trip up to Indiana. Like that never happened when I went with my kids, just with me. So hypothetically, if my kids were to do this, but I'm talking about myself, not my own children here, that my sister Amanda and I would be in the back seat and all of a sudden just the fight would escalate to the point where mom and dad in the front seat would be like, what is all the fighting about? And you know the answer I would always give? It's her fault. And then of course, my nice mother would say, well, what did she do? Well, she looked out my window. She touched my side of the car. She's looking at me funny. Like, you, you understand, parents, you know these excuses. Again, my kids never do this, but your kids probably do. And you see this happen in your car, right? The answer is immediately, why, or the answer to the question, why are you fighting? The answer is immediately them. It's what they're doing. It's what they are not doing. They are the, if they were gone, there would be no fights. There'd be no problems. And anytime that hypothetically happens in my house, our quick answer, no, 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 it takes two at least two to fight. It can take more than that, but at least two to fight. So we feel like James asked this question and our tendency is to almost answer, well, they had to have done something. It had to have been them. That's why they're fighting. Notice James's response. Look at this. I'm gonna put the whole section up on the screen so you can notice a commonality as we read through this. You already see what's in common, don't you? All right, here, let me read through it. So what's causing all the fights? Well, don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Let's state the obvious. What's the real problem? You, no, not me. You're supposed to say me. Don't look at me and say that. No, no, you say me. I'm not the problem. It's you. No, I'm just kidding. James says, why are you fighting? I painted this beautiful picture of what life looks like as a follower of Christ. And so why are you fighting? And we always want to say, well, it's their fault. It's what they did. It's this situation. It's the world we live in. And James is like, no, no. It's you, it's me, it's what's inside of us. He begins this mini rant with the evil desires at war within you. Notice James doesn't say anything about them, about who they're fighting against, about what they're fighting about, what they're fighting over, what the circumstances are. He just says, no, the problem is within you and the problem is within me. James is pointing to a symptom. He's pointing to the branch of a tree. Why are you fighting? And then he quickly moves to the root, the real problem. He says that real problem has nothing to do with the other person. The real problem is within you, not outside of you. Now, at this point, um, we would like James to then quickly, because he's very practical and challenging in his letter, we would like James to quickly move to, so love one another, 
Remember the greatest commandment that Jesus gave us. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, we want James to say that. Remember to be gentle. Remember to be gracious. Remember, we want him to say those things. Instead, he digs in a little bit deeper. If you were planning on on showing up to church today for an encouraging message, you should have showed up next week for the start of Christmas. uh, Because verse 4 is not that. Look at what he says in verse 4. This is harsh language. Instead, he digs in deeper. He just got done saying, you're the problem. You're the problem. You're the problem. Verse 4, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Real quick, he's not talking about being friends with non-Christians. He's talking about you being loyal to the things of this world. Notice the difference. I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? Rhetorical, don't answer that. They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. This language here, he's not talking about the actual act of adultery. He's using language that is used throughout scripture, Old and New Testament, where our relationship with God is viewed as a marriage, right? Symbolically, where where God is viewed as the husband, we as the bride of Christ, we as his people are viewed as his bride. And the way that, that James is using this language, he's painting a picture of what's happened. He says, yes, you're the problem, and you've allowed your heart to drift away from God. Just as a spouse might drift away and go cheat on their spouse, that's adultery. He says, people, Christians, followers of Jesus, you're cheating on God with the world. So he doesn't just say, you're the problem. He says, no, like, your heart is the problem. Like, that's harsh words. That's hard to hear. And all of this started with, why are you fighting amongst yourselves? He goes quickly to the true problem. The heart of the problem is not the other person. The heart of the problem is not even just the desires within us. That's part of it, but he goes deeper. The heart of the problem is our heart. And our heart can be fickle. Our heart can follow God one day and then cheat on him the next. Our heart can praise God in one moment, but then bring somebody else down a moment later. Our hearts are the problem. Now, I don't say this, and, and I don't believe at all, and we're going to see this later. James's intent is not to, like, pile on the guilt. You're a terrible person. No, he's bringing reality to light. Like, if we're all very honest with ourselves, we can say, no, I, I can resonate with that, me included. I resonate with understanding what it means to follow Jesus and give my life to him. I also recognize there's a war waging when, inside of me as it is with you, and we don't always choose the right thing. Our heart can do this. Week one, when we looked at James one, we talked about the divided loyalty, right? That loyalty is a big theme throughout James's letter. So that's why he's using that word adultery. That's why he's using this language is he's not just trying to say, well, you just need to be more gentle. You just need to be more loving. You need to be more forgiving. He's like, no, you need to stop cheating on God. The heart of the issue is your heart. Regardless of them and regardless of the situation, your heart is what we need to talk about, is what James is getting at. He gets all the way down and says, it has to be about you and God. Now, let me hit a timeout. Let me just make sure we're connecting the dots here. Remember, he started this whole thing with, why are you fighting amongst yourselves, right? And he's now talking about cheating on God, uh, being unfaithful to God. Don't miss what James just did. He connected how we treat other people, how you and I interact with one another. He just connected that with our faithfulness and love of God. 
Let me say that again, because that's significant. They're not separate. We like to separate them. Well, I'm going to treat people well. I'm going to work really hard to be nice to people. And then my relationship with God is separate. James says they are not separate. They are connected. In fact, your heart and how you interact with God, your faithfulness and your love to God is going to bear fruit in how you treat other people. Remember, that's part of the branch. That's the symptom. The true issue is our heart. So if you walk out of here just like, man, I'm going to be nicer to other people, you've missed it completely. James is like, we'll get to that. What you need to focus on is your heart, your faithfulness, faithfulness and love of God. If your heart is there, faithful to God, and your heart is loving God, then guess what's going to come from that? What he painted a picture of earlier in chapter 3. When he talked about peace-loving and gentle at all times, willing to yield to others, full of mercy, full of good deeds, those things come from a heart that is faithful to God. Don't separate them. It's not how I treat God and how I treat others. It's how I interact with God, my faithfulness to God, and out of that comes how I treat other people. Notice the connection he's making there. He's not letting people separate others and how we treat God. You ready for some good news now? Like that was, a, that was hard to read. That was hard to preach at you. All right, verse six. Here's the better part. Here's the great news. He changes tone and he turns a corner. Verse six. And he, God, gives grace. And I want you to say this word with me because it's a big deal here. He gives grace generously. Doesn't just give some grace. Doesn't just kind of give grace. No, he gives grace generously, as the scriptures say, and he quotes from Proverbs, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let's talk about it real quick, then we'll move on to what James tells us to do. God opposes the proud, but the humble will find grace. God will give grace generously to the humble. Let's talk about what that means real fast. Opposing, not rejecting, keep in mind. Opposing is the word. Not disown, not disqualify, not reject. But what James is explaining out of Proverbs is that if you are proud, in this context, meaning if you are the God of your own life, if you are not loyal to God, if you are just, man, I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it, I'm, I am the God of my life. I am in control of my life. That's what pride would look like in this context. So what James is explaining and reiterating is if that's you, you are going to always find yourself fighting against God because he can't bless a life like that. So if you find yourself like struggling, man, I never feel like I can move forward, not blaming or judging. I'm asking the question, like, are you trying to be the God of your own life? Because you will find yourself opposing God if that's you. The flip side, though, is but we are given grace. God gives grace generously to the humble. I'm so thankful that doesn't say perfect. Notice the, the proud are the ones that are being opposed, not the imperfect and it's not that God just gives blessings and grace to the perfect. No, if you're perfect, you don't need grace. It's the humble that find grace. What does that mean to be humble? We're going to see that next. Let me get to the next part, and we're going to talk about humility here. Verse 7, so now we get to practical application. James is great at that. He kind of paints a picture of truth. He then gives the reality. You adulterers, thanks a lot, James. Appreciate the confidence there. But then here's what we do with it. Verse 7, so humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. He doesn't hold back any punches here, does he? Purify your hearts for your loyalty. There's that word again. Your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Let me walk you through what's happening here because this is, this is that practical application. We see the beautiful picture, the living proof of what it looks like to give our lives to Christ. We read that in chapter three. We also recognize the reality of our heart condition that we do fight amongst each other. We do cause problems. We are selfish at times. Our issue is not them, it's inside of us. Our issue is our heart. James makes that very clear. So then what do we do with that? We don't go around just moping, even though that's what it sounds like. I'll explain that in a moment. We walk around with humility. We recognize that, yes, I am a sinner. I recognize, yes, my heart is divided at times. You know what is extremely humbling to do? Is to go to somebody and tell them how wrong you were. Have you ever been in that situation? Like relationally, like with a, another person, maybe it's a spouse, it's a child, it's a parent, it's a coworker. If you ever have to go to them, and say, man, I totally messed this up. Here's what I did. This, and this, and this, and I know I shouldn't have, but I did that, and I know it hurt you. That makes you feel extremely humble. That is a humbling experience. That's what James is trying to get us to. Not to pile on the guilt, but to push us to a place of, I'm going to say a word that's probably going to make some of you a little upset. You ready? Confession. That ha that's a loaded word, and I understand that. But humility comes when we begin to confess to God, our Lord, our King, our Creator, our Savior. When we come before Him, we practice humility with confession. Now let's talk about what we confess, because immediately we think of just the, well, here's everything I've done wrong. That's part of it, but don't miss the other parts of it. Yes, we come before Him. In fact, James even uses the word, you sinners. That's who we are. We confess it. Yes, I am a sinner. But I also confess, God, that you are perfect. I confess that I mess up. But I also confess that you give grace generously. You see what happens in confession? It's not just highlighting all of my wrongs. It's highlighting the greatness and the majesty and the generosity of our God. Confession requires both. If you just say, here's everything I've done wrong, and you don't Pay attention to the goodness of God. Yes, that's going to be, that's not, that's not being humble. That's being humiliated. And that's what, not what God calls us to. We confess, yes, I've messed up. Yes, I'm a sinner. And yes, my heart is divided at times. But I also confess that I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And Lord Jesus, I confess that you are my savior. And God, I confess that I am not the God of my own life. God, I confess that you are my king. If you've been with me long enough, you've probably heard me say this. There's a mantra I love to keep in my head at all times as much as possible. He's the king and I'm not. He's the king and I'm not. And the way that I keep this in my head is I repeat that. So say this with me. Say, he's the king and I'm not. He's the king and I'm not. It's a great place to start in confession. Jesus, I claim, I proclaim, I declare, I confess that you're the king and I am not. And I'm a sinner and you are my savior. We practice humility by coming to him humbly with our confession. 
Then he goes to this next part because you can't just have confession. Those are just words. It has to take action. James is really big on that. Again, Chad talked about that last week, that faith is great, but you also have the action to go with it. It's great that you hear God's word, but you also have to do what it says. So there's an action component that's super important. We use another big word that, again, you're not going to like me for, but it has a bad rap, repentance, right? Typically, we think of street corner screamers of confess, repent, right? Turn or burn. That's usually what we think of. Repentance is literally just turning around. So let me, I'm going to show you what repentance looks like. You ready? Repent. Got it. Repent. That's what it looks like, right? Now, you don't have to say it like that. You can say repent, and you can do it just the same way. The idea behind repentance is a turning around, 180 degrees. You're going that direction. Repentance means you start going the other direction. So because of our humble or practicing of humility through confession, then James says, well, here's how you live that out. Here's how you then repent. He says, resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. I love the promises there. When you resist the devil, he's running away. When you start taking steps towards God, God doesn't have to, but in his generosity, the fact that he gives grace generously, he takes steps towards you. God's not on the other end saying, come on, you're almost here. Keep going. My goodness, you're taking forever. Let's go. You take a step and he takes a step. He moves towards you. Now let's talk about the resisting the devil and let's talk about coming close to God because so far that's not that, that helpful. For me to just say, well, resist the devil. You got this good luck. Like there's not a lot of helpfulness there. So let me at least give you some of my, uh, the way I begin to think through this, right? I've shared this before, but I think it's helpful uh, saying resist the devil and just like, don't sin as much. Like that's as helpful as saying, don't think about a purple elephant. Like stop, whatever you do, do not think about a purple elephant. <laughs> Quit. It's not funny. It's not a laughing matter. Like, stop thinking about a purple elephant. Whatever you do, don't think about that. Every one of us is thinking about a purple elephant. There's no way not to if you just say, I'm not supposed to think about a purple elephant. I'm not supposed to think about a purple elephant. Oh my goodness, I keep thinking about a purple elephant. Why? Because that's all your mind is dwelling on. So there's another way to approach it. Everybody think about a green elephant. Think about a green elephant. Consume your mind with the green elephant. Now we're not thinking of purple. Well, you are now that I mentioned it again, probably. Now, now scripture gives that a little bit of a better way to, to walk through that, but the principle is the same here. Romans chapter eight, verse five. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature, the purple elephant, think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit have given their lives to Jesus, received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So what you dwell on, that's what's going to consume you and eventually act on. So what do you think about? Where's your mind focused? James would say, where is your heart? What is your heart loyal to? Here's another phrase that might help with this. And I think we would all agree that this is true, not just in our spiritual lives. What you feed grows, and what you starve, what? It dies. What you feed will grow, and what you begin to starve will die. So a great question for you to reflect on this week. What am I feeding and what am I starving in regards to my spiritual life? What am I feeding and what am I starving? See those things that you hear us talk about a lot as as church people, as Christians, Praying, reading our Bible, going to church like you are today, giving, serving, 
caring, loving, compassionate, like all those things, those are not, James has been clear, those are not things we do so God might like us more. Not the case. Those are things we do to feed our spirit. We pray so that we focus on the things of God. We read his word so we feed our spirit through his word and learn his will. We show up to church on Sunday so that our mind can be consumed of the things of God. We can learn, we can interact with other people. We worship, we sing, we feed our spirit. So what needs to be starved? What is getting attention from you that should not be getting attention from you? Instead of just trying hard not to give in, begin to starve those desires and watch your relationship with God begin to flourish. That next part is really the same idea, but a different spin on it. So we resist the devil, right? We feed our spirit and we starve our desires. Verse eight, come close to God and he will come close to you. We talk about next steps a lot here. This is where that comes from. The idea of moving closer to God requires me to move a little further away from something else. Like that's just, it's obvious, right? Moving closer towards one thing requires me to move further away from another thing. So if I want to move away from the back of this stage, if I want to move away from the screen and I want to move closer to you, I need to take a step in your direction that pushes me away from that and closer to you. Now that got me a little bit closer, but what do I need to do if I want to get even closer? What do I need to do? I got to take another step, don't I? So then if I take another step, I'm even closer to you and I'm even further away from that. So as you begin to think of your life, if I want to get closer to God, what am I also trying to get further away from? And notice how it works together. As I move closer to God, I move further away. If I move further away from one thing, then that pushes me closer to God. Key idea here is consistency and intentionality. I'm intentionally taking a step towards God. I'm intentionally moving towards him, and it's not just one step. It's again and again and again. We resist the devil. We starve our desires, and we move closer to him by continuing to take next steps, steps that cause us to trust him, steps, steps that cause us to depend on him, steps that put us in more of an intimate relationship with God. All right, let's deal with this last part. This is, a, this is hard to understand at times. And in fact, usually uh, we want to skip over this part. I can understand, be humble before God, resist the devil, come near to God, and we want it to stop there. But let me reread, because again, James doesn't hold back. He says, wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. I thought Christians were supposed to be like happy and joyful. This tells us to do the opposite. What's his point here? The idea that James is getting across, he's saying, be sincere. Be sincere. If I, were to, if I owed you an apology and I came up to you and said, hey, I am super sorry, we good? That says one thing versus I deeply regret my actions. I know it hurt you in ways that I do not understand. I am sorry. Those are two very different ways to approach, Right? And so what James is getting at is, yes, there's grace, but don't take that grace, don't abuse that grace. Like, be, be serious and understand the severity of your sin. So when you come before God and practice humility with confession, and you repent, and you resist the devil, and you move towards God, when you do that, man, recognize the hurt and the harm. Recognize what that moment of rebellion against God, recognize that that hurt him. 
So that's why he uses this language. Let there be sadness instead of laughter. Let there be gloom. Recognize the severity of our sin. It's meaningful. Now, when we do that, it should not, again, I've said this a couple times, it should not just pile on the guilt and the shame. That should bring great gratitude. Because out of the recognition of how deep our sin goes, we recognize, what was the word I had you say earlier, that he gives grace what? Generously. So for as deep as your sin goes, his grace is even greater. He gives even more grace. So when we humbly come before him in confession and we recognize the severity of our rebellion, or as James would say, our cheating on God, that brings about great gratitude for our Lord and Savior who gives us grace generously. It also is not intended to, for us to be in that gloomy state forever. The next part, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Don't miss that last part. As we humbly come before him, a sinner who needs a savior, confesses our sins to him, recognizes the severity of our rebellion against him, and we begin to turn towards him, we will not do that perfectly, but we take action to our words he lifts us up and that gloom now turns to joy and those tears can now turn to laughter because of the grace that he has given us. It's kind of a hard section to read, isn't it? But don't miss what we find. Let me go back to what James quoted from Proverbs. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what are the problems that we're dealing with in our lives? It's not them. It's not an it. It's our own heart. So if we could have a moment of checking the condition of our heart, is our heart divided? Is the loyalty of our heart divided? Because the faithfulness and the love that we have for God in our heart will come out in everything we say and do. Because Christianity is not adding just a little bit of Jesus to your life. Christianity is giving your life to Jesus. In this last part, uh, I want to give a suggestion. Sometimes we don't know where to start. Sometimes we don't even have the words. And so sometimes it's helpful to use prayers from Scripture. God, I don't know what to say, so I'm going to just say some words from Scripture. Other times, people have written some very beautiful and even poetic words that we can resonate with and we can relate to. So that's what I'm going to read. I'm going to read a prayer of confession. And as I read this, I want you to listen deeply. This isn't just like, yeah, 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 I get the idea. Listen deeply. And like me, would you be willing to make these words your own? Jesus, here I am again, desiring a thing that if I were to indulge in it, would war against my own heart and the hearts of those I love. O Christ, rather let my life be thine. Take my desires. Let them be consumed in still greater desire for you until there remains no room for these lesser cravings. In this moment, I might choose to indulge a fleeting hunger or I might choose to love you more. Faced with this very temptation, I would rather choose you, Jesus, but I am weak, so be my strength. I am shadowed, so be my light. I am selfish, 
unmake me now and refashion my desires according to the better designs of your love. Given the choice of shame or glory, let me choose glory. Given the choice of this moment or eternity, let me choose in this moment what is eternal. Given the choice of this easy pleasure or the harder road of the cross, give me grace to choose to follow you, knowing that there is nowhere apart from your presence where I might find the peace that I long for. No, long, no lasting satisfaction apart from your reclamation of my heart. So, let me build then my king, a beautiful thing by long obedience, by the steady progression of small choices that laid end to end will become like stones of a pleasing path stretching to eternity. And unto your welcoming arms and unto the sound of your voice pronouncing this judgment, well done. Lord, we come before you, broken, sinners, in need of a Savior. So, Lord, in this moment, we humbly come before you and recognize our rebellion against you. We humbly come before you and admit where we have gone wrong. We admit those things to you not because we have to, but because of what we need from you. We cannot save ourselves. We need you as our Savior. So we confess, not only are we a sinner, we confess that you are our Savior. We confess that you are our King and we are not. We confess that even though we don't always do the right thing, our loyalty is no longer divided. But you have our heart in its entirety. Lord, help us through your Spirit to resist the devil and to move closer to you. Help us to do the things you call us to do. Once again, not because we have to, not out of obligation, but out of sincerity, out of the desire to do what you have called us to do, to live a life that you desire us to live. God, we are not perfect and we will not be perfect. Thank you for your grace that you give so generously. May our humility bring us to a place of great gratitude, recognizing the extent and grandness of your grace. And that's where we say thank you. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.